Attention, attention all personnel, it's MASHCAST! Hello and welcome to MASHCAST, the show that analyzes and celebrates, episode by episode, the greatest TV series of all time, MASH, which aired on CBS from 1972 to 1983. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, General Robert Iron Guts Kelly. And joining us this week in the VIP tent is Captain Reverend Rob. Hi, Rob. Oh, thanks, Rob. It's great to be back. It's uh, great to have you back. And I said, I have promoted you. Last year, you were lieutenant because I felt like that was appropriate. An appropriate rank to start you out on, uh, considering your connection to Father Mulcahy. But you've been promoted. You're, 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 yeah. It only took you one year to get to captain. It took Mulcahy several seasons to get to that rank. Right. I'm making good progress. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, you know, I, of course, when we talked last year, uh, you know, you told me about your background and that you wanted to speak to a Father Mulcahy episode. And then somehow I ended up assigning you the bus, which features Mulcahy not at all. So even though that's a great episode and it turned out to be a great episode of the podcast, I really had fun uh, having you on and talking about that great show. I obviously I wanted to get you on a show centering on Father Mulcahy. So that's what we're going to be doing this time around. We're here to talk about the season five episode. Uh, it's episode eight, Mulcahy's War. The original air date was November 16th, 1976, written by Richard Cogan and directed by George Tyne. So uh, wounded arrive, and one of them has an injury that was clearly self-inflicted. Hawkeye and BJ try to hide that fact from Frank, who would surely drum the young man up on charges. So Hawkeye asks Father Mulcahy to talk to him in post-op. He talks to the private named Fitzsimmons, who comes from the same stomping grounds and even knew the same World War II chaplain, Marty Boom Boom Gallagher, as Mulcahy. The chat is amiable until the private says he's not sorry for what he did to get out of fighting, and he'd do it again if given the chance. Mulcahy tries to show him the error of his ways, but Fitzsimmons is adamant. He even gets angry when Mulcahy reveals he's, been, he's never been to the front, and Fitzsimmons refuses to talk to him anymore. This leaves Mulcahy feeling insecure, and he asks Colonel Potter if he could take a trip to the front once in a while. Potter, of course, refuses, saying it's too unsafe. Meanwhile, an aid station calls the 477th and says they have a soldier with a bad chest wound who needs immediate surgery. Hawkeye gets Radar and Igor to go get him, but Mulcahy takes Igor's place without anyone's permission. Mulcahy and Radar get the soldier, but on the way back, they see the soldier starts to choke and can't breathe. They call the 477 to find out what to do, and Hawkeye talks Mulcahy through a makeshift tracheotomy, which he performs perfectly, if a bit nervously. They make it back to the 477, and the soldier is rushed off to surgery. Potter is a little mad at Mulcahy, but lets it go. Mulcahy, now having seen the war up close, goes back to visit Private Fitzsimmons, who is impressed at the father's bravery and agrees to talk again. All right, Rob, uh, as you, you know, said uh, last year, you know, Mulcahy obviously as a character speaks to you uh, very much. And so, uh, you know, we wanted to talk about a Mulcahy centric episode and this really, uh, obviously this is the season that William Christopher is finally promoted to a full cast member. He gets his name on the, the front credits. And this is really, I mean, he had other moments in the show up to this point, but this is really his first episode that focuses on him yeah it's it clearly he is the focus of the whole episode and we see a lot of character change in him and character growth uh, so it's a really wonderful uh, father Mulcahy episode for sure yeah you have to think that when William Christopher got this script I mean whether they gave him a, a heads up that it was coming or not but I mean you got to think you know the uh, Monday morning I mean Mike Farrell talked about this on the the episode we him and I did about the Monday morning was sort of the, the first table read and, you know, you got to wonder if he didn't know it was coming and he sits down and he sees that title, 
You know, <laughs> he's probably like, oh, good. <laughs> you know, jocularity, jocularity. This is going to be great. Uh, I'm going to get something to do here. So uh, it's like, oh, that's really exciting. But of course, there's other details here going on in this episode. There's the whole subplot about Frank and uh, his, uh, you know, all to his eagerness to uh, put somebody up on charges once uh, he thinks that they've uh, tried to shoot themselves in the in the line of uh, in the line of duty. Uh, the, so the show opens up in surgery, and uh, it starts with uh, with Frank and Margaret squabbling back and forth, and then we get to the the bit about um, Hawkeye and BJ, and they are bandaging up the one patient, and he mentions that uh, the the foot injury, and he says, "You yeah, look at the look at this foot. Kid's quite a marksman, isn't he?" and it's sort of funny, like when I, I mean, I know what episode I'm watching when I get to it, obviously, but if you watch this show, it, it's, Mulcahy doesn't come into it for a little while and you really can, it's easy to forget that this is a Mulcahy episode considering how much is going on in the first couple of minutes of the show. Yeah, because there's a couple of plot lines I and mean, you have the mm-hmm. Corporal Cupcake and that whole uh, storyline as well. So there's, there's a lot going on in this episode. Uh, it's jam-packed with all kinds of interesting things. Um, and of course, the, the central character is Father Mulcahy. Uh, as we all know, that uh, season one, episode one, that character was played by a different actor, yep. uh, George Morgan. I think who you pointed out is still seen in the main title sequence throughout the series. <laughs> Amazing, uh, isn't it? <laughs> just, just a quick shot of of George Morgan. Um, but apparently, Bert Metcalf said that George Morgan was the only performer that Larry Gelbart wanted to change from that. Uh, first episode. Uh, Bert Metcalf wanted William Christopher, brought him in for an audition, as the story goes, and supposedly William Christopher ad-libbed uh, a little too much in the audition. And as we know, uh, you're supposed to stick to a Larry Gelbart script, mm-hmm. and William Christopher didn't. And there was some fear that he had blown the audition, but apparently Bert Metcalf was able to get him another audition. Uh, he comes in, and this time he sticks to the script. And and the, as the story goes, when William Christopher was hired, they told him he had the the job, but they reminded him that he's going to need to stick to the script from that point on. So I think he he learned his lesson and obviously grew as an actor and in the character. Um, early on, we've seen that uh, Mulcahy is played as a bit of a klutz, um, but as the as the seasons and the episodes went on, he quickly became a a respected and dignified character. It's one of the reasons that that I love his character in the show so much is that they treat him uh, a man of faith with much respect and dignity in the show and a fullness. Uh, there's a fullness to his character that is that is welcomed as well. Um, you know, as you guys mentioned early in MASHCAST Season 1, Episode 7, uh, William Christopher sings with his wife Barbara on the Tear Mildred episode. Uh, so we've seen a lot of great moments with Father Mulcahy up to this point. But here, it's just on full view. Yeah. Uh, there was a quote that I saw uh, about William Christopher where they, Larry Gilbert said, you know, why did they get rid of George Morgan? Obviously, because it's – I mean, that happens all the time with pilots – uh, and then the, the, the series go, you know, go, the, the show goes to series and then there's cast changes. That's pretty standard, but still it is, it does, you know, considering how long everyone else lasted on the show, you know, you can't help but notice you're like, well, that's not the same guy. And apparently Larry, Larry Gilbert said that there was nothing wrong with George Morgan, but they wanted an actor who they felt was, uh, gave kind of a peculiar take on his line readings and that, that Larry Gilbert wasn't going to have to write that into it. 
he could just give those lines to an actor and the actor by his nature would give it a, a spin with, that the writing wasn't necessarily having to do that for him. And they felt that William Christopher put that across more than George Morgan. Not to, I, I, I hate to like feel like I'm kicking someone when they're down, although of course this is ancient history now, but I do got to wonder, you know, if you're an actor and you're in the pilot for MASH and they fire you and then MASH goes on to what it became. I mean, how do you get over that? You know, I mean, how do you, I mean, that's like the, the Pete best of MASH. I mean, to be that close to massive success and then to, to you know, and to have the show be on every week and you're not part of it. I got to, I mean, I guess you have to have some sense of a, you know, hopefully uh a, a spiritual center to tell yourself, well, it just wasn't meant to be because I would think that kind of bitterness could, could destroy you if you wanted to let it. I mean, good Lord. I just to be that, you know, to have that permanent fame and all that money and know you were that close to it. And then no, Oh boy. Not enough to just say, well, that's how the industry works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And apparently George Morgan didn't go on to have, um, a particularly long career either. So now yeah, he's still around close, according but, to, yeah, according to IMDb, he's still mm-hmm. around. Uh, yeah, and he's yeah. been in some TV movies and things like that, but yeah, he didn't really have a whole huge career after that. It's just kind of like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, he said my, the whole beginning of this thing, there's this whole run about where Frank is suspicious that this soldier, uh, shot himself because obviously when you shoot yourself in the foot, that's normally what they think. And Hawkeye and BJ make up this BS story about that. He is a place kicker from Fordham and that uh, a, uh, a, a North Korean soldier shot at him and he instinctively kicked the bullet, which of course, <laughs> you know, uh, it's like an insane story. And Frank, I can't tell with how Larry Linville plays it. And maybe that was intentional. I can't tell from, Frank's reaction because he just goes twerps whether he's really buying that story or does he know that this is obviously they're lying to him and he can't be bothered to pursue it any further. I'm guessing that he kind of knows. All right. Yeah, these guys it's are interesting. BS. It does. It does sort of look like at first he's kind of buying the story and then he sort of realizes, Oh, they've just taken it so far. It can't yeah. possibly be true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the reaction, the reaction you have to have to kick a bullet. What are you Superman? Like, how many times? like he can't <laughs> kick a bullet away for Pete's sakes. Uh, but, but, you know, and then of course, uh, and then Frank follows up where he asks radar, does Fordham have a football team? And Radar's like, I don't know, sir. I've been in post op all day, which is, you know, read a bump, 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 uh, kind of gag. But yeah, it's like, does Frank really, you know, and it's sort of funny that Hawkeye and BJ don't even bother to really come up with anything more plausible than that. They just, oh, yeah, he tried to kick the bullet. Like, okay, all right, yeah, we're not, we're not taking this guy seriously at all. And then they get called away when they say there's another chopper landing and they go up uh, there to deal with that. And we get, we see the first patient on the, Side of the chopper is a sergeant. The character is Sergeant Hodkey, played by Rick Mancini. Uh, he passed away in 2006. He had a bunch of interesting credits, and I know you want to talk about one of them, but he was in the movie The Formula with Marlon Brando. He's in Ghostbusters. He was in Ed Wood, one of my favorites. And he was on an episode of the Private Benjamin TV series titled, the, episode, the title of the episode was called Smash with the little asterisks in it. Now, I've never seen that episode, but I have to assume it has some, it has some you know, tangential connection to MASH uh, because, of course, you know, if it's Private Benjamin. It's like a military series. Uh, but, I mean, th- for a guy that I don't really recognize, that's a bunch of really pretty good credits. 
Yeah, and it's interesting that you say you don't recognize him because I recognized him right away. And, that, and that's because uh, I knew him from an episode of The White Shadow. And this was uh, the series from the late 70s into the 80s. Uh, the basketball coach and the high school basketball team. Uh, I was a high school basketball player. I love the white shadow. And there's an episode where the team travels to Las Vegas and Rick Mancini plays a role as a pit boss in Vegas who kicks the high school kids uh, out of a casino. And so I recognized Rick Mancini right away. I was very, very excited to see him uh, cross over to one of my other favorite shows, uh, The White Shadow, which, of course, prompted me to then uh, make note of the fact that there are a lot of overlapping actors uh, with White Shadow and MASH. There's Thomas Carter, who plays Hayward in an episode of the Winchester Tapes. That's the P is for pain, P is for purple uh, episode. Oh, wow. That guy. Okay, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, Larry Flash Jenkins, who plays Wardell Stone in White Shadow. He's in Preventative Medicine, that's season seven, episode 22, The Colonel's Pink and Perfect Appendix, um, and the colonel who tries to give it to the soldier, and that soldier says, keep it, I don't want it. Uh, that's good old Larry Jenkins. Uh, Ken Michaelman, who plays Goldstein in White Shadow, he's in Your Hit Parade in season six. Uh, Stoney Jackson, another actor. He's in season 10, the Clayton Kibbe episode. James Cromwell was in a couple of episodes of The White Shadow. Of course, he plays Leo Bardinero, the jokester, in uh, season six. And then uh, we have Jackie Cooper, who directed uh, 13 episodes of MASH. He also directed five episodes of The White Shadow. And for this episode, Rick Mancini plays Sergeant Hodkey and the pit boss. Now, plus... The little button scene, we'll get to this one probably later, but at the end of this episode, uh, we see the driver of a Jeep is driving away Sergeant Hodkey and Corporal Cupcake. Uh, this driver, uh, Hawkeye calls Phil, drive him away, Phil. This is Russell Philip Robinson, who played Phil Jefferson, the team manager on the White Shadow. So there's <laughs> wow. a lot of crazy overlaps. Now, Phil gets no credit. In this no. episode, but but I recognized him right away. They can't fool me, and there he was. So a lot of overlap between uh, these two great shows. I mean, it makes total sense. They were both in production at the same time. I mean, of course, Mash started before White Shadow and continued on after it, but they were in they were in production at the same time. Um, yep. So that makes it is the way I have not seen the. I watched it as a kid, but I have not seen it since is it available anywhere is it like streaming on some channels for as far as you know it's a good question i have them on dvd so i, I don't gotcha, know actually gotcha, that okay. something you know it, it, it everything is somewhere so somebody's got it um but i don't know right off the bat okay no. um so anyway uh um sergeant hodkey uh beseeches hawkeye please take my buddy he's hurt worse than me uh, it's like, okay, and then he runs over, and then, of course, we get the reveal that uh, the the buddy is, in fact, a dog, Corporal Cupcake, and there's a couple things here. First of all, I noticed somebody on IMDb had a lot of fun because Corporal Cupcake gets an IMDb credit. Uh, he actually, you know, they even have a little picture of him. Now, this is his only credit, uh, and he's not, uh, the, the real name of the dog is not revealed. He's just simply listed as Corporal Cupcake, but said, obviously, whoever was inputting the MASH information decided to have a little bit of fun and give Corporal Cupcake a, uh, I mean, as you just mentioned, Phil doesn't get a mention on IMDb, but the dog does. Um, but, uh, and then I noticed the, the camera pans over and we see that as Hawkeye gets to the dog, we see that BJ has already discovered that it's a dog. And we see that Mike Farrell 
is petting the dog and petting the dog, uh, you know, pretty, pretty, um, not aggressively, but, but comfortably, let me put it that way. And I don't know about you, if you've ever noticed this on TV shows, but like, I think there's no way that you can fake being comfortable with an animal. There just isn't. And I've seen shows where characters have to interact with animals. And even if the character is supposed to be very familiar with the animal, they don't look it. They just can't hide it. Uh, but the way that Mike Farrell is petting the dog and stroking it and rubbing his side, uh, I get the sense Mike Farrell was very comfortable with dogs because he looks like he's just having a nice time petting Corporal Cupcake as opposed to other actors where her have that kind of like, you know, nice doggy, that kind of thing. <laughs> so um, now we don't see it. So maybe, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, BJ does something, but it looks like Corporal Cupcake is not strapped in to the stretcher, uh, which seems like a dubious idea considering that they were flying the dog in a helicopter. You can only do so much in, in shooting. Yeah. I, I'm sure the dog maybe didn't like the idea of being strapped down, but would lay quietly there. I mean, you do what the animal trainer tells you yeah. Uh, yeah. on set and what the animal is capable of doing, but you're absolutely right that, you know, actors and animals, it's not always a good match. And sometimes you know, sometimes people just are not comfortable around the animal that they're with, and it's better if they are, but if they're not, it, it takes some real acting. I know that uh, I had mentioned in our previous episode, The Bus, which, by the way, was a lot of fun, even if uh, Father Mulcahy wasn't in, wasn't in the episode. Uh, but I mentioned that I had spent 15 years in film and television before uh, going into church ministry and uh, was a producer on a children's series, and we had an actress uh, and it was a kind of a crazy kid series, but it, the actress was in the script. Her main pet was an iguana, and <laughs> we had a six-foot iguana. This this animal was huge, and it was very tame, but there were moments where she was required to pick it up and carry it, and, and she was supposed to look like it was her baby, and she's very comfortable with it, but she wasn't. She hated that thing. It was very <laughs> uncomfortable to her. And it's like, well, this is why you're an actress. you got to make it look like you're really comfortable. Uh, but that was a tough moment. So, yeah, actors and animals, not always easy. <laughs> I, I, I'm very comfortable with dogs and cats uh, and even, like, bunny rabbits. But an iguana, I might be a little like, uh, okay, yeah. I mean, but, yeah, yeah pretty, I'm not pretty an historic actor, looking. So. Yeah. Um, so uh, then we cut to, finally, we get to Father Mulcahy. He's giving himself some uh, eye drops, which, of course, will uh, feature into the plot pretty heavily later on. And he's, so he's giving himself the eye drops, and he's, you know, he's put them in, and, he looks, and he's looking up, of course, as you do when you give yourself eye drops. And this is the first of two visual gags uh, that director uh, George Tyne would pull off in this episode. Uh, I think they're a little on the forced side especially the second one but we'll get to it where as he's giving himself the eye drops he's holding the uh, the eyedropper in a way that looks like he's praying so when radar comes in he immediately thinks that father mckay is in fact praying and he pulls his cap off and and folds his hands in in a gesture of respect uh so it's a it's just a silly little gag they don't make a big deal of it uh mash didn't really go in for visual gags a whole lot so it sticks out a little when they're doing it here uh, but it's kind of like what you were talking about, that one of the reasons that Father Mulcahy became such a great character is that they took him they took him seriously and they, they, they treated him with respect. And then the characters themselves treated Father Mulcahy with respect. And I love that Radar sees Father Mulcahy do that and immediately sort of 
you know, goes with the flow and he takes his cap off like, oh, I'm in the middle of a service. It's just a nice little detail. Well, and of course, what's great about it is it's a couple of sight gags. So it's sort of a running joke in the episode, but then it becomes the turning point. It becomes the piece that's, that Father Mulcahy is able to use in the tracheotomy and becomes the life-saving tool. So it's a nice little little thread through the episode where we get these two scenes of sight gags that seem to have no particular purpose, and then it becomes really the central moment in the episode. Yeah. Uh, Radar asks Mulcahy if Fordham has a football team, and Father Mulcahy says, a darn good one. They don't call them the Rams for nothing. Uh, I don't, what is that? You know what that means? What is it? What, what they call them? The Rams for nothing. Is that a particular reference? Well, the, to well, the for, yeah. Fordham university. Uh, yeah. He says they've got a darn good one, which is true. Apparently they have, uh, they had football champions in 1929, uh, 1941, 1942, as recently as 2007, Fordham does have a fine football team. Uh, they're known as the Rams and the NFL's Los Angeles Rams were uh, originally named in honor of Fordham University, the Fordham Rams. Um, very interesting. Fordham has some notable alumni. Uh, President Trump is a graduate of Fordham University, vice presidential candidate Geraldine Ferraro, uh, baseball announcer Vin Scully, and one Alan Alda is a graduate of Fordham University. Oh, hey, so that's hey, got to be why they chose that particular Catholic university to use in the episode. You really buried the lead on that one, Rob, but I have to say to end it without all the, but, but, oh yeah. Okay. That's, I didn't know any of that. So that's, that's cool. All right. And they, I mean, they've established early on that Father Mulcahy is a big football fan. Uh, they did, you know, uh, they did that episode where he came in, I think it was the um, army Navy game with the whole, you know, when he comes in and their father, Notre Dame's not playing. Oh, what's all the excitement about? But I mean, so they've established that, he likes he likes his football, so of course, yeah, he would know that uh, you know Fordham a has a team and that it's a a good team. Uh, so then we get to uh, post op and oh no, excuse me, not post op. We're in op, and uh, Hawkeye is preparing to work on Corporal Cupcake and his uh, his friend Sergeant Sergeant Hodkey talks about that he saved his life. He stepped on a mine, uh, which saved his life, and of course Margaret is uh, not very happy with the idea of germs. Uh, that the dog is spreading uh, in in uh, in the operating room, and uh, you know the the sergeant Hotkey says dogs have more germs than you do, which of course Margaret takes offense at, and he says, uh, "No, I just mean that you know dogs don't have as many germs as humans do." Uh, it's kind of curious to me that I don't, I mean, I don't know enough about this. Of I understand that you know they're 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 in a mash unit and things get done in an unofficial way that would not be done in any other way because they have to. But I am curious that Hawkeye is even remotely qualified to operate on a dog. Now, maybe he doesn't need to operate, operate where he's got to literally, they've got to knock the dog out and do something. Maybe he's, he talks about that the paw is primarily the injury. So maybe the dog, the dog's wounds are relatively superficial and he's able to do that. But I'm kind of curious. I mean, do doctors, know anything do do medical do human medical mds know anything about veterinary medicine is that anything that they're uh the, the doctors that listen to the show Ange and dr chris lewis if you could inform us that would be very helpful because i just don't know whether those sets of knowledge are uh ever crossed over well one of the things that i was reading about uh dogs and military is uh, that after World War II, apparently the war dog programs were disbanded. 
except for the 26th Scout Dog Platoon, which was the only active war dog platoon to serve in the Korean War. So it's not like they had a lot of veterinarians around to serve the service dogs. You probably had to do the best you could with what you had. Uh, but it's very interesting that this 26th Scout Dog Platoon, which I would imagine Corporal Cupcake must have been a member of, uh, they were chiefly deployed on combat night patrols and apparently were detested. These dogs were detested by the North Koreans and the Chinese because of their incredible ability to sniff out ambush snipers, to penetrate enemy lines, uh, and to scent out enemy positions. So they were hated uh, by the enemy. Apparently bombings uh, from the North Koreans and the Chinese would first target munitions depots, and then second, they would target the kennels oh. uh, to, try and, to try and hit the dogs uh, oh. because the dogs were, were so oh, effective. No. Um, oh, no. But here, here's where it gets tricky for MASH because apparently this uh, scout dog platoon was not trained to alert to landmines or booby traps, which is in, entirely what the script calls for here. Um, but it said that some of the dogs did learn uh, to sniff out uh, landmines just by the work that they did. And they, I read about one scout dog in particular in the Korean War was an eight-year-old German shepherd, perfect for this episode, mm. uh, named York. And York was presented with an award for distinguished service. And apparently York led 148 combat patrols and never lost a man. Oh. Um, and so eventually uh, York was returned to Fort Benning and was interred with honors at the age of 12. So uh, there are some dogs who really served well uh, in the war. And and one of the reasons, there are a number of reasons why I was attracted to this episode to talk to you about, but my wife and I raise and train service dogs, uh, not war dogs, but service dogs for veterans with PTSD or children with autism. We do that through a program here in town. Uh, we've had six dogs come through our house, and it's just been so much fun. And what a joy uh, to train these dogs and ready them for a life of service. Um, and so just seeing Corporal Cupcake and the role that, that this dog played uh, in the war and the, and the role that service dogs played uh, is just really a joy. Uh, so great to see this. That, that is all marvelous information, and I want to say thank you for doing that. That's a marvelous thing that you and your wife do. That's a, it's, that's it's a, a really lot of great fun. thing. Yeah. I, yeah, it's, I a, it's a lot of fun. I, I, we have a dog now we had, we've had her for a year now and uh, it's sort of funny. People have ever asked me about like, would you ever foster a dog? And I could never imagine doing that. Cause I would think I wouldn't be able to give it up. You know, I know the whole foster fail thing, but I just, to me, the minute I would take care of any animal for even a couple of days, I feel like I would get so attached that I could never be able to give it up. I mean, uh, training service dogs is very different. But I just, you know, I get so attached to these animals so quickly. So, oh my God, that news that they would it's bomb the true. kennels. I mean, we've, oh. Yeah, we've had we, we've had a dog for seven months and raised it from a pup and trained it to do all kinds of things. And, you know, one of our tasks as trainers is to take them everywhere. They go to church, they go to the grocery store, they go to ball games. Uh, we took our foster dog to Royals baseball games. Uh, they go and do everything and you do get attached to them and it's hard to let them go, but but you know they're going on to a, a bigger purpose, and right. that, that helps. Well, we can't um, There get, is a moment. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, we can't get our Pippa to do anything, so you could come over here and 
train her a little bit. We would very much appreciate it. Treats. It's all about treats. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there is a moment here where they ask, uh, where Father Mulcahy comes in and says, oh, you know, what denomination? And they laugh and say, well, he's a German shepherd, so he must be a Lutheran. Um, and I thought I'd take just a quick second in case there are people who don't get that joke. Uh, but Martin Luther, of course, was a German Catholic priest from the 1500s. He was a seminal figure in the protest or the Protestant movement that led to a fracture in the Catholic Church uh, as Protestant churches emerged and the Lutheran Protestant denomination emerged out of the Martin Luther tradition. So that's sort of the inside joke. He's a German shepherd, so he must be a German Lutheran like Martin Luther. Kind of clever. <laughs> I love that uh, Mulcahy rolls with it. You know, like he sees the dog and he, he takes his mask off and he's delighted. And then he's the one, he said, he starts it with, oh, what denomination is he? I think it's, you know, from the, from the okay, he's hip. You know, he, yeah, he rolls right. with the jokes. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Radar is petting the dog and is very concerned about the dog. And that's, you know, that's Radar. That's exactly Radar. And he's laying there and he's like, oh, gee, what happened, fella? And he's talking to the dog. And, you know, it's just, that's one of the reasons you just love Radar. Uh, is because he's just so concerned for animal well-being and animal welfare and stuff like that. So um, then we have Hawkeye sort of uh, sets up the, the what would be our main plot where he tells Father Mulcahy that there's somebody in post-op that he wants to talk to. But we're going to continue on this gag with the whole uh, Hawkeye can't help telling uh, Frank, well, we do have somebody uh, and they're wounded, but uh, I have to tell you, uh, it's definitely been self-inflicted. He tripped a landmine on purpose. And, of course, Frank is like, well, I'm here as a doctor. We'll get him healthy, and then we'll court-martial him, you know, and then put him in front of a firing squad. And, you know, of course, Hawkeye's, yes, that's exactly the response expected from Frank. So then I love Frank takes a look at the Corporal Cupcake, and he just points, and that's a dog. (laughs) He just says says it like, yeah, okay, (laughs) yeah, we got it. Thank you, Frank. And... He will not, uh, of course, operate on any dog. He feels that that is beneath him. And much like as I was saying, it's so radar to be petting the dog and comforting the dog. It's so frank to regard working on a dog as beneath him. Because, uh, of course, that's how he thinks. I mean, good Lord, he, he regards uh, uh, operating on uh, like North Koreans as beneath him. So he has a very twisted view of what uh, his role is as a doctor. But, you know, I mean, Geez, Corporal Cupcake is a member of the Armed Services. He's a he's a member of the U.S. Army. Come on, Frank, what are you doing? Yeah, it just shows the the sort of lack of compassion. You know, Frank's in medicine for the money and the prestige, yeah. not yeah. for actually caring for people or dogs. Yeah, uh, I gotta say, if I was Hawkeye, I would not be handing Corporal Cupcake over to Frank because I would feel like. He's doing it a little bit under duress, and we know what a bad doctor Frank is. Now we know that Corporal Cupcake's wounds are probably pretty minor, but I—I I don't know. I wouldn't trust him to Frank because Frank—I just—I wouldn't trust anybody to Frank because Frank's a terrible doctor. Unless, unless it's possible that Frank does know his feet, uh, maybe somehow he—he he really is an expert on foot surgery, and maybe he's the best option. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, I said if I was Hawkeye, just do it yourself, Hawkeye. Come on. Um, so, uh, then we catch up to Father Mulcahy in post-op and he is talking to Danny Fitzsimmons. He's played by an actor named Brian Byers. This is the first of two mashes he would do. He was in, uh, episode, a lot of seventies TV. He was in ISIS. Uh, he's in the movie. He knows you're alone. 
Uh, and he also has an appearance in the Netflix series Archive 81, which is like a brand new series. So uh, he's, still, he's still working. Uh, they talk about their, their common background in Philadelphia. When he says, like, you know, was from there. And he says uh, he knew he worked in the seminary. As you must know, Father Marty Gallagher, Boom Boom Gallagher. And they get into the history of that. And so, you know, you know Private Fitzsimmons talks about that he did it. He shot himself to get out of this. And Mulcahy has to kind of parrot the company line, as it were, and say, well, you did something in the heat of, of panic and you made a mistake. And of course, Fitzsimmons is, doesn't regard it as a mistake. He says, I'd do it. I would do it again. And that's when they get into this conversation of, you don't know what it's like up at the front. And he's aghast that Mulcahy has never been there. And I got to say, Fitzsimmons is really hard on Mulcahy. I mean, kind of ridiculously so, where he dismisses all of Mulcahy's points of view because he's never been to the front. Well, lots of people don't go to the front. That doesn't mean that they're cowards. That's not Mulcahy's job. I mean, come on. I mean, Mulcahy is being, I think, as nice about it as he can be. But I think Fitzsimmons is being a little unfair here. Yeah, it's just completely dismissive. Nothing, we have nothing to talk about, he says. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just a talk-to-the-hand moment. I mean, I, there's nothing that we have in common, nothing that we can talk about. It's, it's incredibly dismissive, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, it's not like Mulcahy is uh, in a hospital in, to- you know, in Tokyo, living the good life like a corporal, Win- like a major Winchester is. Uh, but you know, I mean, he is near the front, serving in a mass unit. But yeah, I just feel like uh, all right, Fitzsimmons, come on. I mean, you, you know, you got to know. Yes, you the you might have a good reason why you shoot yourself to get out of uh, to get out of the battle. But you got to know that that no one else can say that that's okay. I mean, you know that what you've done is you're going to get in trouble for that. So, I mean, that could be part of it is that, you know, yeah, Fitzsimmons is being unfair and that's, that's just the way he is. But I also think this plays into something that they would layer in with Mulcahy later on, that he has a deep insecurity that he doesn't, he doesn't uh, matter enough at the 477. To this point, they haven't really gotten into it that much. But that is something that Mulcahy would obviously really bothered him is that he feels that he is not serving as much of a purpose there as some of the doctors. And in fact, the very next scene with Colonel Potter in Potter's office, he talks about that. He says, I feel, uh, you hope you understand how useless I feel here. And Potter is very nice as the greatest commander ever. He says, you know, Mulcahy, you know, you've father, you've got the hardest job in camp. Uh, which is, again, a really warm thing to see. You've got the toughest job in camp, not much glory in it like there is for the surgeons and the nurses, but you're the one who really holds things together. Now, I don't know whether Potter really buys that, but it's a wonderful thing to say to Mulcahy. Yeah, that, that whole scene between Potter and Mulcahy is an excellent scene, um, and it really is, as you mentioned, this is a precursor to an ongoing challenge that, uh, that Mulcahy faces, which is feeling useful. Um, and he constantly is, and we have lots of scenes coming up in, in the series where he's doing menial labor, but he loves doing it because he feels like he's being very effective. He's making a difference. Um, so there is this sort of struggle and, and that's a, you know, that's not an uncommon feeling in ministry, frankly, uh, you know, that, that we who provide uh, spiritual comfort and counseling, pastoral counseling and hospital visits and, you know, comforting people in all kinds of different ways. Um, often we feel a little bit uh, like we would like to be more of a 
of a help, more uh, to, to serve others, but many times we don't hear about it. Uh, there are certainly certain circumstances where I've experienced where someone will be in the hospital that I know and I'll hear about it after they're out, that for whatever reason, they just didn't want people to know. And, and I understand all of that. People have their reasons why they want to share and why they don't. But it does create some occasional feelings of, well, gee, I wish I'd known I would like to have been more helpful in that moment. So it's not, not an uncommon kind of feeling in ministry where we sometimes feel like we've missed opportunities to really come alongside people and be more caring and to make more of a difference for them. Um, but those opportunities just are missed. Mm-hmm. So I, I can see kind of where he's coming from. Um, and the conversation between Mulcahy and Potter about uh, Potter says line officers don't want a chaplain up front. It's just another unarmed man they have to be responsible for. Mm-hmm. When I first heard that, I thought, well, that's curious. I, th- I thought I had always read of military chaplains being on the front lines. Um, so I went and read more about chaplains in the Korean War. And, and uh, you know, I hate to burst the bubble of this episode, but Korean War chaplains certainly did serve in combat theaters and on the front lines. Um, perhaps some line officers may not have wanted to have non-fighting men to worry about, but chaplains were certainly uh, on the front lines and, and in the line of fire. Um, so in that sense, probably not accurate in the script, uh, but, you know, they don't need to be 100% accurate. They're telling a story. Right. But that doesn't seem to be a legitimate uh, reason why chaplains were, were kept out of the front line. Gotcha. Uh, I have a question for you. Maybe you, maybe you can't answer this because obviously this is fiction and, uh, you know, there's no rules really when you're talking about something like that. But like Father McKay says he wants to um, feel more useful, right? And of course, uh, we, as we uh, was mentioned in the previous episode, Dear Sigmund, where Sidney Freeman remarks that, uh, that with seemingly no training, uh, Father McKay, he makes a really great therapist. And there's that scene where the, the, the wounded patient doesn't want to go back in an ambulance. And Mulcahy says, well, fine, we'll put you on a nice slow ship and you'll see your family in six to eight months. And the guy, six to eight months, uh, you know, and then he, of course, uh, says, all right, I'll go back on the, the ambulance. Would it be appropriate, for lack of a better term, would it be appropriate for Father Mulcahy, let's say if somebody wanted to come and talk to him for uh, for whatever reason, like to, 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 to unload, you know, their troubles or whatever, but they didn't, they were not religious uh, and they didn't want advice that would have a religious aspect to it. Would that be appropriate of someone like Father Mulcahy to dispense that kind of advice? Now, I, as I'm saying it, I realize, well, Father Mulcahy wouldn't be so hard hearted to be like, well, get out if you, unless you're, you know, because we know that he he does services for all sorts of faiths. They've talked about that in other episodes. But would that be something that, as a chaplain, would would be again like appropriate for him to do to kind of serve as a therapist without that religious aspect to it? Absolutely. Yeah, I don't even think that's a close call. Uh, you know, before uh, serving in this church, I had served for quite a while as a volunteer emergency chaplain in a hospital and um, and here in town currently as a police chaplain. So a lot of chaplain work and a lot of ministry work is really meeting people where they are. Um, and so first and foremost, you're caring for the person who's dealing with that particular situation. So if I'm 
making visits uh, in the hospital. You know, I always uh, chose to go to the cancer ward uh, because I felt like those were people who were in a position to really have serious conversations about life and death and, and faith if it came up. Uh, but you really meet people where they are. They're concerned about their health. So that's what you talk to them about. Uh, you know, oftentimes people will bring up spiritual questions on their own, uh, even if they didn't originally intend. We're just talking about their treatment and how their is or with police, with the risk of the job. You talk about what's on their mind. And if spiritual issues come up, then obviously we're ready to talk to them about that. But the important thing in chaplain work is really meeting people where they are. Talk about what they deem as the most important thing or the most difficult thing that they're struggling with. And, of course, they know who we are. So, right. you know, often questions of faith just naturally come up and, and uh, we're able to deal with that. But, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing. I mean, chaplain work, you know, unlike a church pastor where you're preaching and you're teaching people on spiritual matters and biblical matters and, you know, people come in for specific pastoral counseling. Uh, chaplains really have to deal with all kinds of different circumstances. And, you know, good chaplains are really trained to do that, to be able to talk to people uh, where they are in their life, what their questions are across a breadth of issues, um, and also be able to handle spiritual questions as they come up. All right. Good to know. All right, again, I would assume. Um, so. I, I guess real quick, I can add to that, that I found a quote uh, from a Korean chaplain talking about what their work was. And he said, uh, he said, in combat, a chaplain's primary role is to provide the ministry of presence, which means simply being with their troops in the midst of the chaos and confusion of war. God uses chaplains to strengthen and to sustain the faith and morale of their troops, to provide comfort and peace to the wounded and dying, and to conduct memorial services to honor the fallen in battle. So it's a very broad calling, and uh, there's a lot of great people who do it incredibly well. Right, right. All right. Absolutely. So uh, we're said in the scene with uh, Colonel Potter, and he's got the eyedropper. This time, all of a sudden, everybody needs eye droppers. Everybody needs eye drops. Mash, never, no one ever needed eye drops. All of a sudden, everybody here has got the allergies. I guess and need eye drops. It's a dry climate there. Right? Yeah. yeah, and uh, we see that Potter is not good at it. He keeps missing uh, his eyes, and he's uh, the the drops are running down his face, and that leads to our second uh, visual gag where uh, Potter is giving himself the eye drops, and his hands are in that same folded position right at the moment that uh, Potter has told Mulcahy that he can't go to the front. So Mulcahy's head goes down in kind of disappointment. And that's when Radar comes in. And once again, he, he thinks that they're in the middle of a service. Um, like I said, it's even more contrived than the first one because it involves two people and just the staging of it. The camera is kind of um, pulled up. Uh, it is shooting down on, uh, on, on uh, Harry Morgan and William Christopher in an angle that we traditionally did not see on MASH. It's kind of from behind behind uh, Potter's desk. But again, they don't make a whole big meal out of it. It's just a fun little visual gag that uh, that uh, George Tyne threw in and that uh, Radar keeps walking into uh, uh, to these things. But before that even, we get the setup where Hawkeye is on the phone with this uh, aid station and he finds out that there is a soldier who was so wounded. Now, why they can't get this guy on a chopper, uh, I don't know. Uh, because, you know, I mean, by the, the length of the conversation, you could have gotten the guy on a chopper and flown him over there. And he asks Radar, and I love this bit where Radar has all this 
well, I got a lot of paperwork to do and I can't, and I'll, oh, I'll do it. He just jumps right yeah. to, he just gives up entirely because he, I mean, he knows he's going to. It's a sweet moment. Yeah, there's a quick throwaway line of Hawkeyes where he says, we don't have any choppers and you don't have any ambulances, so what are we going to do? Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, and, it's, and I, you know, I get that this is a story and we only have limited number of characters, but would they really send a company clerk to go and fetch, fetch a, a patient? That seems like that would certainly be someone else's job to do, but, <laughs> you know, it's Radar, so we want to send him, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're gonna trust Radar to to get it done because you know Radar's obviously very good. Although I would think that the of all the if you're gonna uh, assign two non-coms to go do it, Radar, your company clerk would not be the one you would send because the company clerk's pretty valuable. Say over not to insult him, but over say clear. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so Father Mulcahy he gets turned down and he's disappointed. Uh, Radar gets in the jeep with Igor. And they're ready to go out. And then Father Mulcahy, he basically orders Igor uh, to get out of the Jeep. He doesn't order him exactly, but he sort of, you know, uses his authority to tell Igor he's going instead of him. And, of course, Igor is all too willing to give it up because, you know, geez, who wants to go to the front? It's sort of funny that um, Igor has, like, an ammo belt on, which is, <laughs> like, I'm kind of frightened at the thought of Igor, uh, <laughs> who we've already established, you know, not the sharpest a uh, tool in the shed, uh, walking around with a sidearm. That is kind of terrifying. Yeah, and, and Radar's afraid of his shadow. This is a real yeah. crack team that we're sending <laughs> out to the front to pick up these this wounded man. You know? <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay. Um, and, you know, uh, Radar just kind of says, well, all right, you're not supposed to be going, but all right, Father McKay, he's the lieutenant. He's going, okay, fine. So that's the act break of the show, and then we come back, and then we're up at the aid station, and they meet this sergeant, an unnamed sergeant, who is uh, you know, handing over the patient to them and has them uh, uh, sign like the way, you know, the orders. And he talks about that as a bad chest wound. Now, the actor's name is Richard. I don't know how you pronounce this. It's F-O-R-O-N-J-Y. Ferroni, I'm guessing, would be the right way to say it. Now, this guy had a pretty amazing career. If you go to his IMDb page, though, it's his his profile photo is this episode is him from mash but he was in movies like serpico the gambler he is third build in prince of the city which is a sydney lumet movie as is serpico so i have to assume that uh, sydney lumet liked this guy he used him in two different films he was in a movie yeah. the the fish that saved pittsburgh which was a <laughs> cable favorite of mine repo man Ghostbusters 2, which is funny. Rick Mancini was in Ghostbusters, and this guy was in Ghostbusters 2, and in Midnight Run. I mean, that's 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 a hell of a filmography, and it's kind of amazing Run. that his uh, that uh, that his picture is you know from this relatively small appearance in Mash. And then, of course, the other funny thing is if you listen to the sergeant talk, he sounds kind of familiar. And yes, yes he does. He sounds a lot like Sergeant Zale. Because for some reason he has been entirely dubbed by Johnny Hamer, I don't yeah. know why that I don't know was. What they were doing with sound recording that yeah, day, but it I did have, not go well. I, I mean, now what the weird thing is, it doesn't sound like William Christopher and Gary Berghoff are looped in. It sounds like they're. It sounds like they, the, the, you know, the their lines were recorded, out, you know, out on the out on the uh, the, the the set. Um, and or the ranch as they called it 
So I don't get why one guy's audio would be messed up and the other two not, but that must have been what happened. And for whatever reason, I guess they couldn't get Richard Ferroni back, so they just got uh, Zale to do it. But it's it's a weird thing to hear Sar- <laughs> this guy this guy's face and then hear Sergeant Zale's voice coming out of it. Yeah, no matter how well they did it, it just doesn't work. It just feels so disconnected, I think. Yeah. You would think they would get somebody else on the staff who was an actor who – his voice is not so familiar. I mean, Johnny Hamer had a, such a distinctive voice. Uh, so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a curious choice. Uh, now he tells this horrible story about where radar asks, you guys get any wounded dogs? And he says, no, they're too smart to get wounded. They point out where the Chinese and then they step aside just like generals. And then he mentions that they, one time they did get a wounded goat uh, and uh, with a lot of bad shrapnel wounds and radar says, Oh, what happened to him? And he says, we ate him. And, you know, Radar's horrified by the story. I, it, the way they play it, it's like it's supposed to be kind of a laugh line. As a vegetarian for 24 years, I don't find it funny, <laughs> like the way he says it. I mean, I understand it. You're in a, you're on an aid station. You know, they're probably not, as they said, there are no atheists in foxholes. Probably not a lot of vegetarians on the front lines. But nevertheless, I, I always wince a little like Radar when I hear that line. It's not a great scene. It's not like they even really need the scene other than we see the explosions and, you know, Mulcahy asks, you know, do you ever get used to it or how do you get used to it? And the guy says, well, you basically don't. Um, I think that line is is useful to have because later in the episode, we see that somehow Mulcahy, after performing the tracheotomy, he's calm in the midst of exploding bombs. So in some ways he has kind of gotten used to it. Otherwise the scene is really not that, not that significant. Yeah. Um, so then they're driving, they're driving back. Radar tells a story about a kid he knew in grade school named Leonard Gerst. And that's one of those things where I have to assume that Leonard Gerst is a real person written in by the writer, because that name is so specific uh, that it, it feels like that's a name from somebody's past. You know, it doesn't sound like a, a fake name like, oh, Bill Anderson or John Smith or whatever. Leonard Gerst seems very, very, Gerst is not a name you hear a lot. So I feel like that was the writer, Richard Kogan, probably knew somebody named Leonard Gerst and threw him in as a, uh, you know, <laughs> as, yeah, as a absolutely. salute. Yeah, and the Gerst family's been telling the story ever since. So, yeah. <laughs> probably, probably. So back at the 477th, uh, Hawkeye and BJ are in the mess tent. And they have this nice scene with Klinger where Klinger pretends that uh, there's some really wonderful food prepared and they just kind of blow him, you know, they kind of go with this joke. They talk about that the coffee is really bad. They ask, they ask Klinger, have you seen Father Mulcahy? And he says, no, uh, uh, we haven't seen him in a while. And he says, uh, but uh, if you need any spiritual problems, I can come back uh, dressed as a nun. Because of course, Klinger sure has that outfit. And then he talks about that they, they have this problem with the, um, a patient who shot himself in the foot and they even say to Klinger, well, you know, you know, that could get you home. And I, you know, they have to hand wave that. And Klinger says, I'd never ruin a good pair of nylons. And you know, I mean, it's just kind of a little silly joke, but I always like that about Klinger is that Klinger's dishonesty is weirdly honest. You know what I mean? Like he would never really pull something on Potter that has any real chance of ever working. You know, all of his scams are so obvious that they kind of reveal themselves in the in the in the just the fact that he does them. Like when he had the, you know, dressed up as the 
uh, the Korean lady with the raft or whatever. And so it's like, yeah, I mean, Klinger wants to get out really bad, but he's not going to go so far as to ever shoot himself. Exactly right. Yeah, that's why they call them scams, and they all seem to be having a good laugh at all of Klinger's scams. Uh, but I like this sequence too because uh, you know they say, well, you could go ahead, or he says, I can come back. You know, if you need some spiritual advice, um, dressed up, and uh, I think it's BJ who says, well, you know, be careful. That could be habit forming, which mm-hmm. is you know the uh, a nun's outfit is called a habit, and so it could be habit forming. There's a there's another. A rim shot joke there in the script. And Hawkeye responds appropriately by just swatting him with a towel. He doesn't even say anything. He just reaches out and does it. Um, So Frank shows up and he talks about that the dog is resting comfortably. And he says, I'm humiliated, you know, having to work on a dog. And of course, Hawkeye relates to Frank in a way that he knows Frank will uh, appreciate where he says, some veterinarians make more than doctors. And uh, Frank is impressed by that, of course. And then he says, well, maybe I should put Corporal Cupcake on my, my Christmas card list. And, uh, and <laughs> like, of course, because, yeah, that's the language Frank speaks is, oh, you can make more money being, being a veterinarian maybe than a doctor, which, of course, that's all Frank wants to hear. So uh, we're back with Mulcahy and Radar, and we see that the uh, patient is starting to choke. And they stop, and they check on him, and they call the base. Now, it's very funny that... All of a sudden, there's a working radio that the Jeep has to go back to the 477. They could have used that on the bus uh, from last season. And there were other episodes where they were in a Jeep where there's no radio. Now, maybe they've installed one since then. But it's sort of funny that all of a sudden, the Jeep has a radio that can get back to the 477, which I don't think we'll ever see again. Yeah. Well, you know, it's 1950s technology. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, you never know. Maybe so. Um, so they put a call in, and by the way, Klinger knows how to operate the radio, despite the fact in the Lieutenant Radar O'Reilly episode, he seems hopelessly inept on how to handle any of this stuff. But uh, here he knows how to pick it up. By the way, I've always wondered, when Radar is out, is there somebody manning the phone? There really needs to be, right? Because that's kind of important, the calls that come in. It seems like Klinger just happens to be nearby anytime the phone rings. So yep. he's got a real ability to hear it from long distance, I guess. <laughs> Maybe it's the guy that does the uh, incoming wounded announcements. Uh, <laughs> the guy that we never see. The guy that he's we there. never see. Yeah, yeah, the guy that we never yeah. see. He fills in for radar. Um, so, of course, uh, Potter learns that Mulcahy is there when he's not supposed to be. And he, he's a, you know, not, obviously, uh, that's not good, but we're going to deal with that later. So they talk about that he's choking, he's not getting uh, any air at all, and then they go into this whole thing of, again, give, you have to give this guy a tracheotomy, uh, which, uh, you know, of course, uh, if you've never done anything like that, that is, seems like a pretty horrifying idea, but Hawkeye lays it on the line. He's like, if you don't, the man's dead. So, well, all right, we got to try. And then we have uh, Hawkeye give this very detailed step-by-step process on how to perform a tracheotomy. And he talks about cutting at the notch at the base of the neck. And it's between your, you know, like your chest plate. And I'm like, I'm feeling the little notches. I'm sitting here talking about it. I was going to ask you that. Cause as many times as I've seen the episode, every time Hawkeye gives that instruction, I'm, I'm feeling for my own notch. Yep. yep. Like, okay, that's where, that's where you feel. And that's where you make the cut. Okay. I'm ready to do it. Let's go. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Got it. Um, and then they talk about that. They got to find a tube, and, you know, initially, you know, Raider, Raider's not really quite understanding because he says, uh, you know, I have a pencil. 
And, you know, Hawkeye gets kind of mad even. He's like, no, it's got to be hollow. Think. Because he's getting frustrated. And then, of course, there's the magical eyedropper tube, which has been layered into the episode, uh, you know, all episode. And now that's going to really come in handy. Uh, and they're going to, okay, he cuts open the space. And, boy, you know, I can imagine having somebody cut into your neck while you are at all conscious. That seems like, uh, yeah. Oof, that's hell on earth kind of thing. Uh, but anyway, well, and of course, and it, it's an exciting moment when he says, I have my Tom Mix pocket knife. Yep. And so he pulls out the pocket knife. It looks pretty handy. It looks pretty yep. sharp. Um, and Tom Mix, what a great reference. I mean, Tom Mix is a significant uh, person in the history of film. Uh, you know, this guy was a superstar, a movie superstar from the early 1900s to the 1930s. Uh, I remember reading that it, it, it was said that he made, I think, like $6 million uh, over the course of his lifetime, which equates to about $100 million today. This is, a, this is a popular guy. Um, he apparently was also a circus star for a while, Tom Mix, uh, making a reported 20000 a week, which oh, would be geez. nice even in today's standards. But back then it was equivalent to about 300000 a week. Oh, my Lord. Um, but then apparently Tom Mix lost most of his fortune, or at least a good chunk of his fortune, in the Depression. And, uh, you know, for this episode, it's kind of interesting that uh, Tom Mix was apparently um, famous for doing his own stunts. And I was, <laughs> I was reading a news report, and it was apparently in 1919, while he was filming The Coming of the Law, uh, the script called for a bandit's bullet to pass through Tom Mix's neckerchief knot that he had around his neck. And so the, the band was supposed to shoot from the side. The bullet's supposed to pass through the neckerchief knot. And supposedly Tom Mix insisted on realism, not movie trickery. And so he had this supreme marksman um, actually shoot it. And apparently the first shot was a little outside of the neckerchief knot and Mix in the report said, you need to aim a little more to the right. <laughs> wow. And the next shot apparently pierced the neckerchief knot, but also nicked Mix's throat, Ooh. which interestingly came up later because from 1933 to the early 1950s, the Ralston Purina Company produced a Tom Mix radio show. But supposedly from that throat injury, Tom Mix was no longer, his voice was no longer suitable for radio. And so he didn't do his own voice on the radio show. Just seems a bit ironic to me that Father Mulcahy uses a Tom Mix pocket knife on a man's throat when Tom Mix himself had a throat injury that prevented him from participating in his own radio show. Wow. So Tom Mix, quite, quite an interesting character. That is, uh, no pun intended, Rob, but deep cut that you just found. Yeah. That is pretty amazing. Uh, and and, and appar apparently Tom Mix was also shot twice by his wife as well uh, when she caught him with two other women. He was apparently shot in the back and in the upper arm. So uh, I, I'm assuming uh, that was two separate incidents? Yeah, two separate incidents. And, and apparently you know, his wife was never charged in the shooting and was just hushed up by the studio, which they did back then and could actually keep it secret. Um, but yeah, quite, a, quite an interesting person and quite a life. You would think after that first one, you would really not take the risk on the second one. 
you know it's like, sort, you know. yeah you sort of wonder you know are you are you going to keep doing your own stunts you're going to keep using real bullets or you know you kind of learned your lesson uh yeah uh, wow i mean as you know i mean as as a uh i am a big fan of uh, you know i used to be kind of like a toy collector and i'm certainly a a fan of reading about the history of toys and merchandising that stuff interests me i don't i don't have the the breadth of knowledge that um chris franklin from our network has but i i do know a lot of stuff and i've read a lot of books and like tom mix was one of those guys who clearly was one of the earliest guys to know how to merchandise because there's Tom Mix everything. I mean, they even talk about it right in this episode, the Tom Mix pocket knife. It's not just a pocket knife. It's a Tom Mix pocket knife. But there's Tom Mix had his name on all sorts of products pre-Superman, you know, pre, not pre-Mickey Mouse, but early, you know, before companies knew that you could take a character and put it on everything and make money, Tom Mix was there early. So that had to be part of the reason he had such a vast fortune is that he, he knew how to merchandise. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. So that's, gee, that's an, that's an amazing story. So uh, they, they perform uh, the surgery and it works. They talk about that the tissue, Buckeye has the comment, the tissue is very fibrous. So it's going to be hard to cut through, which is okay. Uh, but it works. They stick the tube in there. And it works. And, uh, of course, it leads to kind of a nice button in the scene where as they're leaving, the bombs are dropping. Radar looks, his helmet's all askew. And uh, he says, let's get out of here. And, and uh, Mulcahy says, very well, Radar, if we must. And uh, so he's not totally relaxed. Uh, he's not worried about it because, of course, once you've cut into a man's neck and you've saved his life, I guess, uh, you know, what's there to get uh, too uh, nervous about after that? Yeah, I mean, radar's falling apart, and after all of this, Father Mulcahy seems pretty calm in the midst of the of the storm all around him. Uh, you know, he says, "I got to say a prayer first before I cut in." And of course, the doctors are urging him to be to be fast. Um, and Mulcahy utters a grace before a meal. Interestingly, radar next to him is muttering the Lord's prayer. Right, right. Um, but of course, you know, in chaplain work and in ministry work, you know, we certainly know that during times of stress particular stress, uh, people tend to revert to what is the most familiar to them. And so it's not surprising that in the midst of all of that stress, the only thing that Father Mulcahy can think of is grace before a meal. Uh, but there's Radar next to him muttering the Lord's Prayer as well. It's a sweet moment. I love that when he when Mulcahy says, I have to do a prayer, Hawkeye looks at BJ in frustration. Uh, because, of course, to Hawkeye, it's like... You know, we can skip that um, because, I mean, from, from Hawkeye's perspective, it's not necessary. And that's a very natural reaction of Hawkeye to be like, no, let's get to, you know, save his life first and then do the prayer. Uh, and, you know, it's just the characters are coming at this from two very different um, backgrounds and, you know, situation scenarios. But, I mean, I, I like that moment that Hawkeye has that just look of like, oh, come on, yeah, come on, come on, come on. Um, so, anyway, they get the patient back and then uh, we catch up with everybody in – the, uh, the O Club, and uh, Mulcahy, you know, Mulcahy does apologize for saying, you know, it was wrong for me to go out there without, uh, you know, without your, without your permission. Potter forgives him and even says even Boom Boom Gallagher would probably approve, which, of course, is, you know, Potter is exactly, of course, the, the kind of commander that you would want. You know, he gives you some grief, but ultimately he knows you did the right thing, so it's okay. Uh, and then Potter, I mean, excuse me, and then Mulcahy meets up with Fitzsimmons, uh, in post-op and uh, Fitzsimmons has heard the story. He says everybody's talking about, it. he cut a hole in the guy's throat under fire too. And then he agrees to 
talk to Mulcahy. And that's the end of the uh, act break, the the main part of the episode where they are, okay, obviously he's going to talk uh, Danny into, uh, you know, rethinking his whole idea about shooting himself again. But so, you know, grateful Mulcahy, he had this, you know, wonderful transformation, uh, you know, and Mulcahy's too nice a guy to kind of like rub it in Fitzsimmons' face a little. I mean, like, I didn't really need to do all that, but I did. So, okay. Uh, you know, am I good enough to talk to you now? It's fine. But, uh, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice way to wrap up the, the main plot. Uh, yeah. It's a wonderful little moment between the two of them. It's a nice, neat ending to the whole episode. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, now, of course, this episode would be completely forgotten by the writers when season 11 came along in the trick or treatment episode where Mulcahy saves a life and Potter has the line, well, you're officially in the club, Father. You saved a life. I'm like, well, he saved a life right here. He, sa- <laughs> he saved a life in season five. Why doesn't anybody remember that? And I, I always wonder how these things get made. Like, didn't William Christopher remember that? You know, I mean, maybe at some point he wasn't inclined to, like, could, you know, correct the writers. But I would think that, you know, of all the actors, William Christopher would remember this episode. And he might have said at the time, uh, that line doesn't make any sense because I, I did save a life six seasons ago, but, you know, okay. <laughs> I think that's one of those moments where, uh, you know, in the in the writer's room, you know, I think Mulcahy probably does say, wait a minute, I did save a life. And their answer is, well, no one's going to remember from back then. And what do you think? Somewhere in the future, people are going to be looking at these shows on a granular level. Nobody's going to be doing that. Exactly. We're fine. We don't need to worry about it. Yeah, there's no way a bunch of nerds are going to be talking about this 30 years from now. Um, so, uh, and then the button scene is, uh, again, the sergeant with Sergeant Cupcake. Frank, uh, Hawkeye's there, Radar's there. Frank comes by, and you can tell by the way Sergeant Cupcake is staring at Frank, and Frank reaches out to pet him that Frank must have, that Larry Linville must have some sort of dog treat in his hand because the dog is sniffing furiously at Larry Linville's hand. And then they do a cut where he's barking at Frank and Frank, of course, gets scared. Up. But you could, you can always tell, uh, you know, our dog gets like that. When you know, when, the, when, when Pippa knows we have something for her uh, in our hand, she is laser focused on that. And you can see the German Shepherd is just looking at Larry Linville's fist like, mm, treat, snossage, snossage. <laughs> so as, yeah, as an let actor. Let me do what uh, I'm supposed to do to get the treat. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Whatever, whatever, whatever I'm going to do. Um, now you mentioned the the, the actor that playing the uh, the jeep driver. You said now he was from White Shadow as well. Yeah, he plays the the team manager on White Shadow, and he's credited there. Uh, Phil even gets an episode devoted to himself, but here he's called Phil again. And but there's he's not in the credit, but I I'm sure that's the same guy. Okay, uh, so then the episode ends with Radar talking about that it's funny that a dog outranks him, and Hawkeye says, "I know how you feel." Uh, I'm only a captain and Frank is a major. And it's just kind of like a kind of <laughs> into the episode. Uh, yeah. but, it, but I mean, it's, it's a great show and you know, William Christopher delivers, you know, I mean, they obviously he'd been with the show since the beginning, basically. Uh, and they, you know, they knew he could do it, but I'm sure uh, it was a relief to everybody that you're like, Oh, Hey, we can write a whole show around this character uh, if we need to. Now, I do want to mention, I mentioned the, earlier the writer, Richard Kogan. That must be a pen name because he is credited on IMDb. Uh, I guess it was presumably his real name, Charlie Hauck, H-A-U-C-K. He was credited as Richard Kogan on a bunch of shows. He just passed away in 2020. Uh, he wrote for shows like Frasier, Home Improvement, and Maud. Now, why he had a 
pen name, you know, we don't know. Uh, but uh, oh. this was his one and only script for MASH. And as I mentioned, George Tyne, this was his second uh, episode directing MASH. He would come back and do five more. So he would come back and, and work on the show. But this is it for Richard Kogan, uh, which, again, is too bad. I think it's a fine episode. It's a really well-written episode. Uh, you know, Father Mulcahy, uh, William Christopher's acting in the tracheotomy scene is really wonderful there to to watch the emotion on his face and that wonderful line where he says the skin seemed to close right around it and Hawkeye says that's exactly what's supposed to happen I mean you can really sense the fear uh, that's going on with Father Mulcahy and having to do this he winces when he cuts in Mm -hmm. it's just a really well-performed scene Um, and you didn't mention the Charlie Hawk the writer on this also wrote for one day at a time, if people remember that episode. Sure. And in fact, I checked and in my previous life as a post producer, editor, producer in, in film, I found out that I have a six degrees of separation from Charlie Hawk. Uh, he wrote an episode of one day at a time. Uh, one day at a time was produced in part by a man named Bud Weiser and Bud Weiser had done a lot of work. <laughs> that sounds like a fake <laughs> name. It's, it's a wonderful name. And uh, when I was an assistant editor and a post-production coordinator with National Geographic, Budweiser rented an office in our suite uh, when he was a freelance writer and producer at the time. I got uh, to spend some time talking to him. So I think that's, is that officially two degrees of separation from the writer of this episode? Hmm. Um, interesting. And of course, Valerie Bertinelli was on One Day at a Time. And so I think that gives me three degrees of separation from Eddie Van Halen, which is even better. So, <laughs> so yeah, this is a really well-written episode, and I'm with you. I always wonder, how come you didn't write more? Yeah. Uh, why didn't they bring him back to write more episodes? This is a really well-written episode. Yeah, I mean, he clearly was not a staff writer, um, so he's one of the, somebody doing freelance. But, yeah, I would just wonder, considering the amount of episodes MASH had to produce, uh, that you would only do one, but again, you never know. Maybe they were, maybe it was heavily rewritten by the staff, you know, or something like that. We don't, we'll, we'll never know. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, I thought was very funny is on the IMDB trivia for this. Someone felt the need to put in the trivia that in this episode, quote, Hawkeye only makes one lecherous comment, unquote. Why that person <laughs> felt that that was the kind of thing that needed to be added to the trivia. I don't really think it counts as trivia, uh, really? And uh, I obviously this person was bothered by the lecherous comments that Hawkeye made. I can't imagine what they thought about the first couple seasons of the show. But I just found it funny that somebody out there in the crazy world of IMDb commenting felt the need to add that to the show trivia. So, uh, okay. I mean that this person has a database of all of those comments of Hawkeye? Lecherous comments I guess database? So. Yeah. I guess they have some sort of Excel spreadsheet and it's like, you know, that's uh, yeah. seven, nine, two, one. Oh, this one only has one. I'll put that in. Just, people will find this interesting. Uh, so, so uh, <laughs> Rob, do you have a favorite line or joke from this episode? You know, actually my favorite part of this episode really is the eye drops sequence. Uh, the, the two interruptions by radar, I think are funny. Uh, Colonel Potter is clearly the worst person ever at administering eye drops since he says he gets it on his ear. So, uh, and then <laughs> wastes and then the a lot of the, wastes a lot of eye drops. <laughs> he wastes a lot of them, yeah. And the, and he's, he tries multiple times. And then, of course, the eyedropper becomes uh, the lifesaver. I just love that kind of thread through the whole episode. Uh, my favorite uh, joke. It, this is not. 
I don't, I never mean to, uh, to to diminish an episode by saying it's something less than than other ones because that's never what I mean. This is not like their funniest episode. Uh, it's it's a great episode. It's a great storyline, and there's a lot of great jokes in it. But it is not say like a Dear Sigmund or uh, you know um, uh, the abduction of Mar- Margaret Houlihan, which were you know joke a joke machine gun in terms of how many great lines there were. But I do love this was more of a reaction line. But I love it when. Uh, Hawkeye is trying to kind of speak up for the dog to to Margaret because she's uh, upset that there's a dog in 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 the operating room, and he says, uh, uh, "Well, Corporal," uh, and he doesn't know the name of the dog, and the sergeant goes, "Cupcake," and he goes, "Really?" <laughs> Corporal Cupcake here, and just the way Alan Alda delivers the really, like it's just like surprised that this big mean looking German Shepherd is named Cupcake. I just found that. Uh, again, I'm sure it's in the script, but it's it's a great actor that makes can make something sound like they're literally just thinking it and saying it for the first time. And I chuckle every time I hear it. Uh, it really is a great that. moment. Yeah, I w- I put a star by that moment too because it's it got to be in the script, but it's written so it's such a natural reaction. That he, yeah, that he you, gives. you know, really? you're, you're expecting killer or Rommel <laughs> or you know, some kind of big tough yeah. name, and instead it's cupcake. Oh, okay. Um, so, well, Rob, you know, thank you for coming back to the show. I'm glad we got to do a Father Mulcahy centric episode and this was important to you. And, and, uh, you know, we had, we always have a lot of fun. So thank you so much for coming by. So great. Always enjoy. Appreciate you having me back. Absolutely. So of course, everybody, uh, if you want to follow this show on Twitter, go to match for seven, seven cash. You can find back episodes of the show on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And then finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash podcast, and there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big salute to Daniel Ulrich, Nicholas Braun, Russell Burbage, Dan Peel, Britt Schramm, Mike Thomas, Michael Porter, Joe Perino, and Billy Shulman for their support of MASHCast. I very much appreciate it. So uh, that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back soon. But until then, that is all. Klinger. Have you seen Father Mulcahy? No, sir, I haven't seen him all day. But if it's a spiritual problem, give me a minute and I'll come back as a nun. Careful, Klinger. Dressing as a nun can be habit-forming. <laughs>